Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Thank you for listening and making a commitment to learning. We really hope that everybody is doing well. We really hope everybody is excited as us, just because each week is new. We are your hosts. I am Jordan Porter, joined by the wonderful Yvonne Brandenburg. Aw, thanks. Hey, girl. <laughs> hey. Hey. Okay, first it's of a all, week. it is July. Yep. We made it's a it new month. June. <laughs> we survived June. Woo! Oh my God. Barely. <sighs> it was funny. I saw something too, where it said something about how like the plot of like the story of earth is like, it has like huge holes in it. Cause it's like, whatever happened to the murder hornets? Like these plot holes are just like ridiculous. Yeah. The murder hornets. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see what July is going to hold. Um, yeah, I mean, we went through that dust storm. Oh, you, that's right. You had to deal with the dust storm. I, (laughs) I don't think the dust storm got to me because I was on the other side. I don't know. I don't even know what happened to the dust storm. Is it coming towards me? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, what's happening with the dust storm? I don't even know. (sighs) I think it hit us. What? Like, I don't know, Saturday or Sunday. It was like cloudy, like it was going to rain all day, but it didn't. And then it was just kind of like hazy, but like it gets like that around here. It gets like mm. pollen-y. <laughs> and yeah. like just like my daughter sneezed a lot and that was about it. Nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll get, we'll get through yet another month of 2020. Woo! <laughs> oh, we better. We got plans. (laughs) We got like major plans. So it's going to be ironic when we're like 10 years from now, we're like, oh, do you remember 2020 when all these things happened and we actually did stuff? That's super vague. That's the time. Remember 2020 when we did stuff and we did stuff when there was stuff going on? Wow. My My husband did that to me last night. He was like, do you remember that show that had that thing about that guy? And I was like, what he like you know what I'm doing yeah (laughs) he's like you you know what I'm talking about I was like no I I honestly feel like that sometimes at work I'm like so did you get the the med for the thing that the 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 client wanted and half the times my my partner she knows exactly what I'm talking about um and then I giggle and I'm like the fact that you understood (laughs) what I was trying to say is means we've been together way too long uh-huh. exactly uh, you know doctors do it too so it's not too oh bad. for sure, for sure. <laughs> anyway <sighs> let's see if you are listening to this in the first week of july of 2020 we appreciate you guys still listening if you're listening to this in the future thank you for going back and listening <laughs> um but join our wait list <laughs> so what jordan was talking about is uh we are in the process of building a membership site which is kind of funny because um we're just we're just regular vet techs <laughs> um i don't have a programming background or anything like that but you know we're building a website so it's been this steep learning curve of things 
Um, it's a good thing I'm not scared of computers, <laughs> but we are uh, building a membership site and we have our wait list up, which if you go to imfvt.com, which is so internal medicine for vet techs, basically. So imfvt.com, you can join the, mem uh, the membership wait list. We are planning to launch, I believe right now we were just looking at our calendar. So I, I, I believe we're looking at ooh, August, 2020. We'll just, we'll leave it at August, 2020. Cause we don't have a definite date yet. Uh, where yeah. we're gonna, we're gonna open this up. But again, this is based on, um, how many technical issues I have, I think is probably the best way to say this. <laughs> yeah. Building uh, websites is hard. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's been a learning curve, but again, just like anything in veterinary medicine, right? There is a learning curve and then eventually you feel smarter about it. <laughs> and then eventually it's done and you're like, that was not as, no, it still was really hard, but it was worth it. So we're, we're doing that. So if you are, you think you might want to be part of a community, um, you know, community of fellow minded technicians, veterinarians as well, if they want to be in there, um, and you know, continue education, Who love internal medicine. <laughs> yeah. Ideally you like internal medicine. I mean, I feel like you kind of have to, if you're listening to this podcast, right? You got to have some but interest in it. Luckily, internal medicine is very broad. It's very like you get it in so many different realms. Like well, you, you get it in GP a lot. And I was going to say, you can't, you can't really get away from internal medicine. No, exactly. <laughs> as, as many people try to, they can't. <laughs> so yeah. So uh, join the wait list at imfvt.com. And if this is, you know, past August ish, <laughs> 2020, that you're listening to this podcast episode, um, don't worry. It'll, if you go to imfvt.com, it'll, it'll redirect you to the right place. I promise. Um, so we just wanted to let you guys know about that. We, we do have some people on the wait list, which is kind of cool. Um, we it's do. Very exciting. It's very great. Yeah. Um, we also have a couple shout outs this week to do. So we had a couple of reviews. Um, first one is from Erica Murdoch, which we met her virtually ish <laughs> through the Q and A. Oh yeah, that's right. She was in the Q and A. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Yes. Um, so she said, <laughs> I was like, well, and I saw her name pop up in the Q and A and I was like, I was like, I know that name. Like I know I've seen or heard her name somewhere like on the IMFVT stuff. Right. So Erica posted awesome podcast. I absolutely love listening to Yvonne and Jordan, two SAIMVTSs who really know their stuff. Oh, <laughs> I am also a SAIM vet tech looking to obtain my VTS in the next two years. And it is so awesome to hear these ladies discuss the topics that I'm learning about and the procedures I do at work. I love hearing different ideas and points of view from other techs who do what I do. I highly recommend this podcast Aww. to everyone I work with and anyone else who's looking for a fun and educational podcast. <laughs> Wait, she just said fun and educational. I know. Oh, yay. We're fun and educational. We're not just fun or just educational. It's both, which is exciting. Um, and then the magic school bus. 
And it's like the magic school bus. Yes, exactly. Um, and it's I'm like excited. My dream. <laughs> oh my God. You're like, yes. So are we going to make a cartoon of us? Oh my God. That would be amazing. <laughs> I don't know if I want to see it. <laughs> I totally want to oh see it. If we have any like creative people who can actually like make a cartoon of oh, us. No. Oh my God. That'd be amazing. You don't think that'd be amazing? I oh think it'd be amazing, but I'm, I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> I'd be like, what do we look like? <laughs> oh, we would look like us, but in 2D. But in 2D. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, I'm excited about this next one because I actually met Joanne in person. So not just virtually, but in person. So um, Joanne Devins Gleason, she posted uh, or she did a review that said best podcast. I really enjoying listening to this podcast and as a fairly new lead at a four doctor practice, it has helped give me more confidence in discussing treatments and recommendations with some of my baby vets as well as my seasoned ones. I've been listening since week one and initially slowed progress to make time to take notes what <laughs> to make to make notes right. <laughs> each show for a quick reference and apparently as technicians we just don't have that type of time on our hands and have since co- converted back to listening whenever i can so i can catch back up i recommend this podcast to all my coworkers and especially my baby techs so we can all benefit thanks so much and i was like <laughs> I love it. Uh, when she told me she was Sweet. taking notes, I was like, wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. I was like, but we have notes. <laughs> so, right. But I get it. Like, I think when you're learning about stuff, especially if you're an auditory learner, right. Um, mm-hmm. well, I guess, I don't know, maybe it's more, what is it? Kinesthetic where you write, yeah, where you listen and write at the same time. Like, yeah, yeah. that's what I do. So that's more like the kinesthetic learner where you're writing stuff down. And then, you know, depending on what type of notes you do, like I I remember in school, I learned like how to write notes better so you can read it later because that was always the challenge. Like what, what does that sentence mean? Um, didn't we just talk about this? We (laughs) definitely, (laughs) we definitely talked about that with our notes previously. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, I mean, I think that says a lot that people are, you know, learning and, but really just, just sit back and enjoy the podcast. It's what we're here for. Yeah, exactly. So this week, diving into the actual episode, we will be discussing renal disease. Um, when we see abnormalities in lab values, like the blood urea nitrogen, AKA BUN mm-hmm. and creatinine. Um, I know that pretty much every clinic probably has to see some form of kidney disease. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that probably when I was like a new tech, that was probably one of the first diseases I had to deal with. I think that's like the internal medicine disease you can't get away from. Like, right. even if you're a cardio tech, like you're still seeing renal disease. Oh, for sure. Like... Because you've got like Lasix that makes them have issues with kidneys. Yeah. And yeah. I think kidney disease, unfortunately, super common. Um, so common. Yeah. So we're going to discuss chronic renal disease and acute renal failure. They are both different things. So we're just going to kind of discuss them 
Yeah. And not really. I was going to say it's (laughs) it's one of those things too, like when you're a baby tech and you're learning about it. So chronic renal disease, um, or chronic renal failure. So CRF, um, or you hear it said chronic kidney disease. So CKD, so CKD and CRF are the same thing. Basically it's just whether or not you're using kidney or renal. And then there's acute renal failure or um, ARF. Um, I, mm-hmm. I don't. Or ARD. Do we say ARD? Acute renal disease. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I th- I think of it more as like CKD and then ARF. Like I th- I think that's yeah. That's kind of my like. Those are the terms that we say all the time in clinic. Yeah. I I mean I definitely agree. So the difference between the two. So CKD or chronic kidney disease is kidney damage or like a decreased kidney function that's occurred for three months or longer. So that's our chronic. We've talked about chronic a lot in our past episodes Mm -hmm. and like just the meaning of chronic is usually three months or longer. Mm -hmm. And remember, I I think we talked about it in last episode too, is the reason why it's considered chronic is you're not seeing changes in blood values until, what was it, 75%? Yeah. 75% for blood values. Yeah. So that's a lot of damage that has happened. Um, you lose 75% of the function and then all of a sudden we're seeing blood values increase, um, with, you know, when we're talking BUN and creatinine. So, and and again, it doesn't repair itself. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. we're talking long-term. You can manage manage it. Yeah. Yeah. You can manage it, but you can't fix it Mm -hmm. versus acute renal failure is potentially reversible. Not always, um, but potentially. So this is like a rapid loss of kidney function. So something just slams those kidneys hard. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes it's like a toxin. It's an actual like physical injury. Um, And this can lead to the accumulation of nitrogenous waste, electrolyte disturbances, fluid imbalances. Um, But like I said, sometimes this can be potentially reversible. Yeah. And it, and, and it can, it can be, you know, especially if whatever the underlying thing can be fixed. So if there's an infection that can be fixed, if there's a stone mm-hmm. that's blocking, right. If we remove that or it, it passes, that can fix it. Um, if or just even simple dehydration, yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> dehydration or um, insult because of low blood pressure, let's say from like a procedure we've done. Um, so if we can fix mm-hmm. whatever underlying cause there is, hopefully we haven't killed off those cells. They're just a little bit traumatized and a little bit mad. And then we see how much kidney damage there is that's going to be chronic. Um, so yeah, exactly. Cause acute renal failure can lead to chronic mm-hmm. kidney disease, but sometimes the kidney can actually repair itself and, and it can adapt. It can adapt to that damage. And so you're not seeing those blood changes like normal, mm-hmm. but it is something to keep in the back of your mind. If you have a patient who's experienced acute renal failure from something that those kidney values are going to need to be rechecked because at some yeah. point it very well might turn into chronic kidney disease. Yep. And, it, um, and it's long-term like you're, this is not something that it's like one and done. Like you're consistently rechecking it and it could be every six months. It could be a year, but you don't want to be like, Oh yeah, they're fine. And then never check it again. Yeah. But these aren't the patients that need to go home with like sub key fluids every week. So hopefully not. <laughs> right? <laughs> Usually. 
Um, I'm not going to go into anatomy and physiology too much, just because we discussed that a lot last episode. Yes. Um, so if you do need to go back and listen to episode 38, you can go to imfvt.org slash episode 38. Um, and you can listen back to the anatomy and physiology of our kidneys. And then of course the website reference on internal medicine for pet parents.com. We had that, that had a really good resource with a video that I also attached to episode 38 show notes, but it presents in so many different breeds, dogs and cats, but it is the most common renal disorder in both dogs and cats. And I'm talking chronic kidney disease, just because acute renal disease is very intermittent and again, caused by something. <laughs> but yes, so chronic kidney disease is the most common renal disorder in both dogs and cats. Uh, a lot of the breeds that are predisposed um, for cats tend to be Persians, Abyssinians, Ragdolls, Burmese, Russian Blues, Maine Coons, Siamese, all the cats that I'm like deathly allergic to. <laughs> so of course, whenever we have a chronic renal disease, I'm uh, like, I, uh, <laughs> I, I see so many domestic short hairs though with it. I just, yeah, I think it's just because of like breeding and just, like, yeah, because I mean, guess technically the domestic short hair isn't considered a breed so i wonder like they're mixed with those things right so maybe that's part of it yeah and then our our dog breeds tend to include boxers um <laughs> boxers get king, whatever they want boxers can have everything um cavalier king charles uh, westies um bull terriers which i love bull terriers i i've seen one with chronic kidney oh. disease and he was so sweet um English Cocker Spaniels, Sharpays. Ugh, yeah, Sharpays. Yeah, because so Sharpays, that's that's the amyloidosis thing, right? That attacks the kidneys. Isn't that Sharpays? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I thought that was one of the big things with Sharpays is like that and like Sharpay fever. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And Westies. I feel like I see a ton of Westies with it too. I'm really surprised that like Maltese isn't on the list. Because I feel like I see a lot of Maltese's. Yeah. It's like the little white dogs. You know? Yeah. But it can develop at any age in dogs and cats, chronic kidney disease. Again, I'm not really specifically talking about acute renal failure because, again, that can develop at any age as well. Mm -hmm. And it can be due to many different things. Um, but chronic kidney disease is usually diagnosed in older patients and tends to progress with age. Um, but if diagnosed in younger patients, then it's typically considered like congenital mm -hmm. or assumed to be congenital which those are sad i've gotten those where it's like an eight month old golden in like renal failure yep and i'm like oh i have one right now she um i think we started seeing her at like six to eight months old and she's oh i think she's two now and every time we see her her values just get worse and worse and worse and i'm like oh, yeah no, you're only two yeah we had one patient i think we started with around probably nine months of age and she lived to be about three or four wow. three probably yeah it was kind of a bummer yeah um there can also be comor comorbidities that kind of help with the progression of chronic kidney disease <laughs> <Right>. like hypercalcemia <laughs> yeah. cardiac diseases and cardiac diseases more because of cardiac meds <laughs> well yeah um, and, and and there's so there's like the whole cardiac hyperthyroid and then kidney thing like there's that whole mm -hmm. like circle <laughs> it's 
it's like okay so the hyperthyroid leads to cardiac disease which leads to kidney disease which leads you know it's like they just like circle around each other it's so sad yeah and then um what period periodontal periodontal disease can definitely mm-hmm. i had that conversation with so many clients when i was in gp um cystitis because that can lead to pyelonephritis mm-hmm. which can lead to chronic kidney disease bladder stones um because mm-hmm. those can lead to obstructions which can lead to kidney disease hyperthyroidism like uh yvonne already said and then cardiac abnormalities that are detected on auscultation diabetes and infectious pathogens the infectious pathogens for sure we see it lepto and lyme disease mm, a lot yeah. over here um so those are pretty hard on the kidneys yeah and then diet has also been researched a little bit into causing chronic kidney disease so like potassium depleted or um increased phosphorus with high protein diets were associated um with chronic kidney disease in cats but it's not the case for dogs so cats definitely tend to be a little bit more sensitive i know a lot of doctors will also talk to about like diet there's a lot of talk about whether or not cats should be on canned food to protect their kidneys longer mm-hmm. versus dry food. But I don't think, I don't think there's anything like set in stone about that. No, I feel like there's, there's a ton of research going on about, you know, all of that. <laughs> um, and, and I feel like if there was a magic bullet for cats on this one, I, I think we would know about it. <laughs> um yeah but it yeah it's hard because you know the proteins are processed by the kidneys so the higher proteins make the kidneys work harder um which isn't a good thing when they're already damaged so yeah and then the fluid in the food you know is is that better for them we don't really know um we just know that they need fluid. So whether it's drinking it or whether it's getting in a wet food, you know, as long as they're getting fluids in, it shouldn't matter. I don't know. It's, it, 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 there's still a ton of research being done, which is. Yeah. And then I think too, so history is going to be the same for both of these, except when managing your chronic kidney disease patients, you do want to kind of look through the record or ask the client if they know if there's an acute kidney renal failure episode, just because that can progress into chronic kidney disease in some of our patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of history taking questions that I'm pretty like set in my ways about asking, obviously appetite and nauseousness, so vomiting, diarrhea, but indoor, outdoor, especially for our feline patients, just because you don't know what they have access to outside. Mm -hmm. Um, and then for my canine patients, I like to ask, like, do they have access? Like, do they live on a wooded lot? Do they have access to standing water? Because in my brain, I'm thinking lepto. Do they like to drink out of puddles or do they go swim in ponds? Uh, do they just roam in the woods kind of willy nilly? Cause people do that around here. That is not a question I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> well, like a, a lot of the houses around here are on like wooded lots. Yeah, no, we have and people just like feel that their dogs out and just like, like brown grass, not even very sad (laughs) real green grass (laughs) no No, it's very brown here. sounds beautiful there's pavements and brown grass that's california for you yeah yeah but we do Um, have like standing water um and so yeah we'll we'll we definitely check with that for dogs cats not so much because cats are finny usually finicky about water 
they usually prefer clean water versus dogs sometimes yeah. really like the grossest water possible oh for sure <sighs> but for cats for cats i strictly just be like do they go outside and then it's like do like they're hunting are they eating mm -hmm. lizards and birds and things like that and then i ask like of course like are you noticing pupd uh or drinking increase in drinking increase in urinating because that's a huge sign yeah. um the other and of course, the other like, one lethargy. like if we're talking acute kidney injury the other one and i and i hate this one and i really wish somebody would tackle this is um plants so especially flowers like lilies are deadly to cats um and if you go to like if you go to a grocery store and get a bouquet of flowers right now like every bouquet of flowers at my local grocery store has lilies in them and i'm just like cool except they're toxic to my cats so can we not have the lilies um and so sometimes just asking that or if they have them in the garden the cats or dogs like to chew on them so just knowing what plants are around too or if there's any toxins those are all questions that you're asking your clients during intake which is a bummer yeah exactly and i don't normally ask owners to know like the specific urine output for dogs but normal urine output for both dogs and cats is about 20 to 40 mils per kig per day obviously i'm not going to be like how many mils is your dog urinating per day <laughs> no um i usually i usually <laughs> just ask you know the whole like are they going more frequently have all does it take yeah. them three minutes to pee instead of the quick two seconds that they used to do um or is it both of them yeah you know are they exactly are they not able to make it outside because that's that's another thing like if you've got a dog that normally goes out but you don't have a dog door and all of a sudden they're making they're having accidents in the house because they can't wait you know that's another thing if it's a cat are they urinating outside of the litter box um are they seeing draining to urinate or are they painful um so those are kind of all things you're yeah. asking or are clients. they are they like urinating in their sleep um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where they're not waking up when they do it or like dripping urine while walking like especially after urinating mm -hmm. but for in hospital use when you have these patients it's it's helpful to know that the normal urine output for dogs and cats polyuria is technically considered polyuria when you have greater than 40 to 50 mils per kg per day mm -hmm. we're asking our clients yeah are you seeing increase in frequency increase in volume or both polyuria is the increase in frequency only so that's our that's going to be for our like uti patients where they're doing that small frequent urinations but you know every five minutes they're they're going to pee right oliguria is below normal amount of urine output so you're like actually you know like the dog's only peeing once a day even though he used to go three or four times a day um and that's very abnormal for him or again when you're in the hospital and you're seeing that a patient has only urinated in once in the past 24 hours and it was a normal amount where it was at 20 to 40 mils per kg um that's not that's not normal <laughs> and yeah, then anuria is bad yeah yeah and and it's really important that if you notice that you talk to your doctor right away because yeah anuria is anuric. no urine output yeah yeah that's horrible it's really bad if you're managing a like severe renal failure in your hospital and your patient becomes anuric and it usually starts off like gradual it's usually um oliguria first mm -hmm. where they're just like getting out like a little bit like a few mils at a time mm -hmm. and then they just become anuric and that's just like that's bad news for the kidneys that is 
kind of like that means the kidneys aren't working like yeah, the, the that's fluids, like closing the curtain yeah. <laughs> the fluids are going in because we've got iv fluids right so it's not that they're dehydrated the kidneys are just not doing their job so they're not pushing out the fluid um and and that's that's not a that's not a good sign so these patients are they're not urinating you know you're you you look with ultrasound and you don't see a big bladder it just is either small or you know you don't see anything in there um and then you're weighing the patients to make sure you know are they gaining weight do they look poofy <laughs> um are you seeing discharge coming from their nose are they you know discharge from the eye are they drooling incessantly you know where is that yeah, fluid, is fluid going, going somewhere else exactly. <laughs> Um, so it, you know, you can see all of those things if a patient is now aneuric. Um, so it's really important to, to, to recognize that and, and talk to your doctor about it. Yeah. It's, it's so bad. And it's so sad. Like I've only had a few aneuric patients, mm -hmm. but it's so sad. But then too, like, how does your patient look on pr presentation? Like poor body condition, which is notorious for our chronic kidney disease. They're always like k and skinny and um yeah. do they have a poor hair coat do they have halitosis or or um oral ulcerations because that's big for chronic kidney disease um mm -hmm. just because that they have a uremic smell it's this very specific smell that comes from their mouth and it smells like kidney failure but it's it, like that, that acetone it, people people talk about the acetone smell yeah exactly and if you have that acetone smell it creates oral ulcerations like it's like mm -hmm. they can also get um, well their pH is usually increased too right and so mm -hmm. it's increased pH you you're you've got the BUN which is the the urea right that's that's causing oral ulcers because it's excreting from the salivary glands so you'll see it like where the salivary glands come out all of a sudden it's just like you've got these oral ulcers um, and they may not have had them before. So this is, this is all new stuff. And that could be why they're having really smelly breath. And so an owner may be telling you about that. So something yeah, else to look and for. I've, se I've seen those ulcerations like on their tongue and they'll just get like one big patch mm. on their tongue, you know? Oh, yeah, that's horrible. I've seen it. Oh, it's bad. And then they can also have muscle tremors and hypothermia, but the poor hair coat and weight loss can actually cause, be caused by like significant protein loss too. So mm -hmm. if you're noticing that just on presentation, um, it's one of those things where you can bring it to your doctor's attention and be like, Hey, we should probably check protein levels. Even if it's just like a PCV and like total solids, mm -hmm. like total protein, like you want to make sure that that's not low. And we'll discuss it a little bit more in the next couple of episodes, but renal failure patients or renal disease patients can actually have significant protein loss. And we'll talk about why, mm -hmm. um, but it causes their albumin to drop um, just like in our GI patients sometimes. So, yeah. And the, the hypothermia, um, their, their system kind of gets reset. So a lot of times you'll see, especially like chronic kidney patients, they'll come in at a lower temperature and that's quote unquote it's like normal for normal. them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like their body is just kind of reset to it because of everything that's going on. And so it's really important to understand if you're seeing a chronic pa kidney patient, like over months and years, and they're normally, you know, 90, 989, 991, 99 something. And then they come in and their temperature is 101.2. Yes classically that's not considered a fever but for that patient it is considered a fever because it is significantly higher than their normal temperature so you can 
it should trigger in your mind to look for a potential infection, um, especially if they're suddenly not doing as well as they were doing. So, yeah, definitely. I think so many of my chronic kidney disease patients, their normal blood temperature when they come into us is like 98.6. Like it's so common. Mm-hmm. And that's why too, like if you have them in your hospital, right. And you want to, you want to warm them, right. We all want to warm our patients so they're not cold. Well, that's why they're moving away from the heat source because they're like, ah, it's hot. Like I'm not used to running 99.5101. Like I'm used to running 98.9. So that's just something that we need to kind of keep in mind. Uh, The other big thing with, with kidney patients is a lot of times we see GI signs, um, vomiting especially, especially. Then once the numbers get higher, so the BUN and the creatinine climb, they feel worse and worse and worse um, because it just, it just makes them feel horrible. So yeah, I mean, GI signs are so common, especially vomiting, just because the kidneys aren't functioning at hundred percent, obviously. Um, so there's that lack of like gastrin clearance, hmm. which results in the hyperacidity of the stomach, which can lead to ulceration of the stomach as well, um, as the mouth, but like, you're just increasing the acid production in the stomach because there's nothing telling it to turn off. Right. Which is why a lot of times they'll respond to Pepsid or, um, Prilosec. Yeah. Yeah. Omeprazole is a big one that we use. And then azotemia itself can produce uremic ulcerations, just like Yvonne said, but when it, when it's advanced, so that's when we're Mm -hmm. seeing greater than 140 BUNs (laughs) that you just can't get to move. And then in advanced cases, you can see neurologic signs, which is, Mm -hmm. it's so scary because it's like difficulty walking, stumbling, lethargy, um, altered mentation. They can have seizures and then like classic where they can have cervical ventroflexion and a plantigrade Mm. stance. This is classic in our cats because what causes this is a low potassium and low potassium caused from the kidney disease. Not to mention hypokalemia as well can cause muscle tremors and weakness and pain cramps, which, so basically you have a cat with her head stuck down. <laughs> and yeah, they, they can't pick it up. Like they, they, they look at you, but they can't pick their heads up. Yeah. Um, and so sup- the potassium supplementation, is, it, it's, it's crazy when you're like treating these patients and you get to give them the potassium supplements and all of a sudden, you know, week, two weeks later, like their potassium's normal and they're acting really well again. Um, like I, I'll never forget. We had, um, baby cat, <laughs> baby cat was, uh, she was a little tortoise, tortoise shell and she was a pistol. <laughs> she was very much a caution. Um, and we would always tell mom that we knew when her numbers were going to be up because she was weak <laughs> and she didn't try to eat us and kill us every time she came in. Uh, so we knew her numbers were going to be elevated <laughs> and sure enough, almost every single time we were like, yep, she's up again. We got to adjust medications. Um, and then, you know, we, we were like, oh, she's actually low on potassium. And, and one of the things that mom had mentioned to us was at home, she was having trouble jumping up on like her little favorite chair and stuff like that. And it's because her potassium was low. So she was weak and not able to jump. So it's just, you know, there's, there's a lot of moving pieces with CKD and, and potassium is just kind of like one of them. 
unfortunately. Yeah, there's there's a reason why the potassium supplement is called like renal K gel. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, say, I think that's exactly the name of it because it's kidneys. Yeah, exactly. Um, your differential diagnosis for chronic kidney disease or acute renal failure can go on and on and on. There's um, a lot. <laughs> the common ones are like UTIs, urinary incontinence, pyelonephritis, leptospirosis, Lyme disease, um, bladder stones, prostatic diseases, lower urinary tract disease, ectopic ureters, IBD, hyperthyroidism, diabetes mellitus, Cushing's disease, diabetes insipidus, toxins, and it just infection in general. <laughs> and I'm certain like I missed so some. many things. Yeah. There's a reason just, why I didn't go to school to be a doctor. So I didn't have to be like, <laughs> which is it? <laughs> right. You got to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Exactly. Exactly. Which um, is where we come in. <laughs> exactly. Because we help put the pieces together. We help make the pieces. No, we, <laughs> exactly. Um, technician skills should be utilized a lot in these patients just because you're probably should be performing cystocentesis just because again, we want a nice, clean, sterile sample of the urine just to eliminate any chance for a UTI, um, and determine if you do have a UTI versus pyelonephritis versus it's not actually a urine problem at all. Not to mention too, we talked about it a little bit last week, but sometimes you can see shedding cells of like specific casts that can indicate like tubular casts that can indicate like kidney damage. The other thing too, like with the cystocentesis, I mean, we're fortunate we have an ultrasound in our clinic. I like using the ultrasound because first of all, it's easier for me to know exactly <laughs> where I'm poking. But second of all, when I'm looking, like I look to see if I see any like stones in there, crystals in there, polyps, do I see a mass? And so you know, as a tech, we very much can do those things. Um, it's not, it's not a doctor thing. Um, well, I don't, I don't think there's any places where cystocentesis is doctor specific, right? That you know of? I, I don't know for sure. I mean, if I had to guess, I was going to guess California, but I guess that's not the case. Like, no, huh? Well, if anybody knows of a specific place where cystocentesis is a doctor specific task, let us know. Cause I'd be interested to know that. Yeah. Like, I wonder if the UK, that's my question. Cause oh, I feel yeah. like there's, there's one specific task that we do all the time that I think is like doctor specific. So our UK friends, let us know. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Also like blood drawing capabilities for these patients is really important because you do want a mm. nice, I mean, mind you, every patient, you really do want a nice clean stick, but in these patients, because they can have hypokalemia, um, you really want like a nice, well, their, their, their veins are just much more friable because of the toxins that have built up that it, it actually makes those vessels, you know, able to rupture easily, um, or excuse me, able to rupture more easily. So, and if you've got a patient, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times they have high blood pressure. So if, you know, you go through the blood vessel and they've got high blood pressure, but you kind of missed, then you can all of a sudden get a giant bruise because of the higher pressure. So yeah, being, being as gentle as you can with them is best. Um, and I feel like I usually use a leg. Yeah, yeah. I always use a leg because we, I mean, I am, we don't ever, <laughs> right. but you can hemolyze the sample though too. And that can alter your like potassium 
levels and stuff like that, it, if you have mm -hmm. a hemolyzed sample, it can give you false readings on those electrolyte levels, as well as your glucose levels and stuff like that too. And that's pretty important for our, our kidney disease patients. Yeah. And I think the, the other thing to remember to so depending on where they're at in their process like if they're coming in you know and they're not stable like they're coming in because they're dehydrated they look like crap they're gonna have spaghetti you know tiny little veins um especially on our cats and so it's gonna be difficult to hit them you know you may need to go with a smaller size catheter to get them initially hydrated um, the other thing that's common because they're so dehydrated, their skin is actually thicker and dry. And so that's when you, you know, have that tough skin to get into. Um, you know, when we're doing a blood draw, I personally love butterfly catheters for blood draws on these patients because sometimes their blood pressure is crappy peripherally. So I can, you know, use less pressure drawing so I don't rupture blood cells, um, compared to like, if I use just a syringe straight into the vein. Yeah. We use butterflies all the time. And I'm like, we notoriously, like we'll try with like a three mil syringe, but then we'll just switch and get a bunch of one mil syringes to fill up all the tubes that we need. Cause these patients do tend to also be anemic, mm -hmm. um, which we didn't really talk about a little bit like too much, but we've talked about it in the blood episodes before where they're yeah. like erythropoietin levels are just not right because right. I, we, that's something we forgot to talk about last time or in the, the basics episode is that the kidneys one of the things that they do is they produce the hormone erythropoietin so if you have kidney damage you know it's it, it could be that they're making less of the erythropoietin or they're just not making it at all so what happens is um erythropoietin is what stimulates the bone marrow for red blood cell production um so if the kidneys aren't making them then we we have to supplement it and so you know these kids might be coming in chronic like weekly or monthly or whatever it is to check to see where their red blood cell level is to get them stable. So blood drawing for them <laughs> is crucial. Take what you need, not more than you need kind of thing. Um, yeah, exactly. And at times too, some of these patients need a blood transfusion just to get them back to like a functioning level. Yeah. The other thing too, um, other skills that we do is, um, so our non-invasive blood pressures, uh, it's very common for us to, to, to do blood pressures on these cats. I I'm going to say cats cause most of our patients that are CKDs are cats. There are some dogs, um, but you know, it, getting a blood pressure on them is very important um, and making sure we're doing blood pressures appropriately. So making sure we're grabbing the right size cuff, making sure, you know, the location of the cuff is appropriate uh, and, you know, getting, getting a blood pressure. And, and I usually, I usually do a set of three. Do you do three in average? Yeah. So we do three, but like, let's go back and talk about like measuring for an appropriate cuff. Cause what I do is we'll measure like the width of the foot or the leg. Um, and it, we want it to be about covering about 40% of the cuff itself. Yeah. And I don't know, are your doctors particular about where you place the cuff? Cause mine definitely are. No, but when we do blood pressures, on like rechecks on patients, like it needs to be consistent. Oh, yeah. so we use the same yep. cuff, same leg, same position every time. Mm -hmm. 
but other than that, they, we mostly do hind legs and we, yeah. So we always do the leg that's up because you want it because you want it at the level of the atrium, the uh, yeah, of the atrium. And if you have, if it's the down leg, you also have the pressure of the body weighing on there, especially for like dogs and stuff like that. But yeah, the, um, the width of it shouldn't be more than 30 to 40%. And honestly, most of the blood pressure cuffs out there have a measurement guide on there. So you can take a tape measure and just go around the circumference of the leg and pick the right cuff. Um, Cause you know, using the wrong size cuff will give you either a high reading or a low reading, depending on which way you go with your cuff size. Uh, and then again, Jordan, you know, she kind of talked about this is you want to make sure that you're recording it in the medical record. So, you know, what size cuff it was, what leg you were using. Is it in the lateral recumbency? Is it above the hawk, below the hawk? Is it on the tail? Is it, you know, so all those things are really important so that in the future, when you do it again, we kind of have like for like. And then our lab work, we definitely want to do just kind of general, like basic lab work. So you want to do your blood biochemistry levels just to really get the BUN creatinine, um, numbers that you're looking for. You definitely want protein numbers in there. So you want to see what the albumin looks like. You want to see red blood cell level, electrolyte levels. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. And then, yeah, you want to see electrolytes and then our CBC is definitely going to tell us like our red blood cell level. So if we're anemic urinalysis again, to see, are we battling a UTI or pyelonephritis or diabetes is our glucose in the mm -hmm. urine. Um, and then you want to see if there's any abnormal cells in that as well. Mm -hmm. And then Body weight and body condition score are really important in these patients, and that needs to be monitored basically every every appointment that they come in. Well, and it's not just your body condition score, but it's also your muscle condition score, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can have patients with very different muscle condition scores, but they weigh about the same. So that's, um, you know, it helps give more of a complete picture. If you've got your body weight, you've got your body condition score, and you have your muscle muscle condition score, like all three of those are are important to remember um, when you're when you're looking yeah. at these patients. Because so many of these patients are just cachexic and it's mm -hmm. it's just due to disease. And then so to kind of describe some of these terms that we're gonna see. So uremia is a term that describes like the clinical uh, the clinical signs associated with disease. So that's when you're seeing the PUPD, decreased appetite, increased vomiting. Um, but azotemia describes the changes in the blood work. So that's where you have an azotemic patient who has elevated BUN and creatinine, um, but you have a uremic patient who's just exhibiting signs. Huh. You can have both. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you have both a lot. Um, and then we talked about a little bit last week, but creatinine and BUN can rise after about 75% of function loss. And then the ability to concentrate urine is usually lost after about 66% of function loss. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see it in urine concentration first. So this is where mm -hmm. your, um, your urine specific gravity, I believe is what under 1005, that kind of, uh, no, because I think there's like a, there's like a line, like I think if it's under 1020, um, but it needs to be above 1005 because also like you can, have kidney function to have too dilute of urine. It's weird. Yeah. 
so it, it, the other thing we ha I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but it's a really good resource is the IRIS, um, which is the International Renal Interest Society. IRIS standards or IRIS guidelines, it's, you definitely need to know it if you're getting your VTS, but um, it's really good when you're working with kidney patients because it gives you a grade of how bad the kidney disease is. Yeah, so the ability to concentrate urine. So we see that when the urine concentration, the urine specific gravity goes below 1030 in dogs. And when I say 1030, I mean 1.030 1. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 1035 in cats. And then, but it, it shouldn't ever drop below 1007. Again, 1.007. So you can have a range, and it's considered renal azotemia when the urine specific gravity is in between those two ranges. So 1007 to 1015 is like pretty bad, but anything less than 1030 is considered in correlation with renal disease. Hmm. And then pre-renal azotemia. So when you're dealing with acute renal failure, they have the pre-renal azotemia, renal azotemia, and then post-renal azotemia, and they all have different causes and different reasoning. So pre-renal azotemia can occur due to like insufficient blood throw through the glomeruli, which just in turn prevents adequate filtering and toxin removal. Right. This can cause... Because we were talking about yeah. it last week about the glomerulus and the pressure. So if we have low blood pressure, then the blood's not able to get to the glomerulus for that filtration. So, um, exactly. and that's pre-renal. So before it gets to the kidney. And so that can cause a rise in the BUN and creatinine, but the urine generally remains very concentrated. So these are the patients where you're going to see an elevated BUN and creatinine, but your urine concentration is going to be like 1046. Mm -hmm. That's very that's normal. Dehydration. And treated just by, Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's classic. It's best treated by replenishing fluid volume and just restoring the patient's normal blood pressure. We see this a lot in like heat strokes. <laughs> yeah, as I say, heat so. strokes or um, vomiting patients, like they got into something mm -hmm. and they're vomiting, we'll see it um, because they've just dehydrated themselves. And so we give them the fluids and a lot of times everything kind of corrects itself, which is good. Yeah, exactly. And then renal azotemia can actually be caused by injury to any part of the kidney, um, which decreases perfusion um, or toxins can cause this medications or infection. So sometimes we'll see this with like NSAID administration, mm -hmm. but it's typically more severe than our pre-renal azotemia. And it usually it takes longer to lasts create, longer yeah, to correct it. Yeah. It takes longer to correct. And sometimes it doesn't get corrected. So Ugh. sometimes these are those and especially with our infections too. So we can see like a leptospirosis patient and we're treating, 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 and those kidney values are getting better, but it takes months for them to like normalize. Yeah. Sometimes they don't, but they can. We'll figure out where their new normal is. Exactly. So post-renal azotemia though, tends to be caused from like rupture of the bladder um, or, or obstruction. obstruction of the bladder. Yeah. That's, that makes yeah. sense. It's really bad and really severe because again, that's not necessarily like kidney damage, but it's just right. build well, up. Well, but it could, it could be depending on where the obstruction is. So, you know, if you've yeah. got like a stone blocking the ureter, you know, that's going to cause post renal azotemia, but it could back up. Then the urine backs up into the kidney, causes pressure and causes more damage. So it just, 
it all depends on where the problem is and, and you know, how severe everything is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And hypertension and protein loss really play a huge role in like the progression. Um, and it says in our canine patients, but let's be real in our yeah. canine patients too, because if they're battling high blood pressure, I mean, cats don't necessarily get the protein issues like dogs do, I feel like, but, um, they can, but if we're not combating the protein and the hypertension, then CKD is just going to progress and progress a lot faster. However, our feline patients do tend to outlive our canine patients with chronic kidney disease. And I 100% agree with that statement. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like dogs tend to crash and burn quicker than cats do. But we got a lot of this information from the IRIS. So the International Renal Interest Mm -hmm. Society, I'm going to share a lot of their stuff in our show notes just because they have a lot of cool printouts that you can post. Yeah. Their website is great. Um, It's also good for like helping understand it and talking to clients um, so that they can Mm -hmm. understand it's a continuum, right? They, so they have the stages one through four and it may be that your pet comes in at a four, but it goes home at a two, right? So it's, it's not like once you're in that stage, that's it. You can't do anything about it. It's yes, they're here, but we're going to see how low we can get them. Um, so it's, it is, Mm -hmm. it's nice to have that as, as like a, okay, how are we doing? What's, what's going on with them? So stage one's pretty mild. Um, you're going to see PUPD, but usually a normal creatinine. So in dogs, the creatinine is going to be one less than 1.4 milligrams per deciliter in cats. Creatinine is going to be less than 1.6 milligrams per deciliter. So pretty mild it's elevated, but mildly elevated. Sometimes it's normal, but they're still showing signs of PUPD. Um, stage two is PUPD with mild blood work abnormalities. So this is where you're going to see start seeing those, like, I don't know, to me, stage two is a typical chronic kidney disease. This is where we like them kind of hanging out. Like, like exactly. We know we're not going to get them really to stage one. So we hope to get them to stage Mm -hmm. two and just maintain in that, in in that stage. Yeah. So stage two for dogs, creatinine is usually between 1.4 and 2.0 milligrams per deciliter and cats. It is 1.6 to 2.8 milligrams Mm -hmm. per deciliter. And then some patients in stage one and stage two can have very high blood pressure, which can actually lead to hyphema, which is blood Mm -hmm. in the eye. Um, It can lead to retinal detachments, retinopathy, and then all these things can lead to sudden blindness and then lethargy and weakness. blood pressure, yeah. I'm trying to think. I feel like dogs, I see it more with dogs, but then I was like, no, I've seen a couple of cats. And it sucks because you know, when they, when they have this happen, like the retinal detachments, it's usually like very sudden, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not, it's not like one of those, Mm -hmm. you know, subtle chronic change of vision. It's a sudden change in vision. And that's very stressful to the animal because they went from seeing to not being able to see. Um, so there, these ones are the ones it's not that they're painful necessarily, but I mean, they can be depending on what's going on, but it's, it's very distressing. They're, they're usually like panicking because of it, um, which is hard. Uh, yeah. Like which you're suddenly t- blind, not a good thing. <laughs> like if I was just like, just, just going about my day, like eating my bowl of food. And then all of a sudden it was like, bam, your blood pressure just pops. Like, oh, sounds horrible. 
just oh <laughs> anyway so stage three is a little bit more progressed this is where you're going to start seeing a little bit more clinical signs so you're going to have pupd weight loss vomiting decreased appetite and then our creatinine levels are going to be a lot higher so in dogs that creatinine level is usually between 2.1 and 5 milligrams per deciliter and then cats it's going to be about 2.9 to 5 milligrams per deciliter and the disease can usually be very progressive in these mm-hmm. pa- patients so it kind of progresses to stage four very rapidly from stage three if you don't get it under control pretty quickly issues yeah all the things all the things (laughs) if you're not treating the vomiting because that can lead to dehydration which can lead to more Mm -hmm. kidney issues if you're not treating the phosphorus you know the the, the, um low pcvs if you're not you know it's it's all that stuff it's again the body likes homeostasis um so Exactly. Because too, if you have an anemic patient too, the heart's which working causes harder. higher blood pressure, which trying you to know. pump that thin blood. Yeah. All, all the things. <laughs> it's a wonderful balance. Yep. And then stage four. Ugh, I hate stage four. This is when their creatinine's above the 5.0 milligrams per deciliter. And it's just, ugh. yeah. And this is a poor prognosis. Like I've heard all of my doctors say it, like if it's above five, like it's hard. I mean, mind you, we've had several where we've gotten yeah. below five. Really with like aggressive therapy. Fluid therapy. Yeah. yeah. We, um, and, and this is interesting because um, we, we kind of talked about our congenital kids earlier. Um, I feel like the congenital pets, they go, they, they may be stage three and four and barely show any signs. Mm-hmm. Like, like symptoms. I mean, oh yeah, um, because they've just so used to. Yeah, and the moment they do start showing symptoms, you're like, oh no, it's almost the yeah, end. And they're like, <laughs> they're like greater than 140 bun, and their creatinine's like who knows what. It's like nine. You're just like, how yeah. are you alive? How are right? you walking? How did we you have had, breakfast this morning? Yeah, right. We had a patient whose creatinine. I think the most recent, like really bad one, was a creatinine like 14.7, and I was like. How are you? I had one that said <laughs> like greater than fifteen point nine, and I was like, "You wow. maxed out the creatinine." I was like, "Oh, right." How does that happen? Was that it's patient really peeing really stuff? Bad. Uh, I guess maybe I you didn't get that, that far. Was one of my <laughs> annual, I just remember being like, "Holy, what the?" Um, I'm pretty sure it wasn't. I think I want to say, I think that was one that had like an obstruction, mm. like a ureter obstruction or something like that. I can't remember, but it was, it was bad. It was really That's bad. Crazy. And we like, Ooh, and like 24 hours of fluids. It's still barely like, I think it got to like 14 point something. I was like, Ooh, that's, that's not good. Yeah. That's bad. Um, mm-hmm. Treatment for these guys really is dependent on the patient, honestly, but Mm-hmm. Um, for our, we do recommend hospitalization for our acute renal failures, just to store, restore fluid volume and correct blood pressure. And then for our chronic kidney disease hospitalization to restore electrolyte imbalances, especially that potassium level. And then it depends Diuracine. on the creatinine. Yeah. It depends on the creatinine level. If you have a stage two, sometimes you can get away with just like sub Q fluid demonstrations and sending mm-hmm. home with like oral supplementation of potassium and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, now for these patients, it's super important to determine like fluid deficit. And this can be done mm-hmm. by determining percentage dehydrated times the body weight, which equals your fluid deficit in, in liters. So it's actually a really simple math problem. 
Um, typically your fluid deficit replacement is going to be given over four to six hours and then maintenance. As long as there's not heart issues. Exactly. Because a lot of these kidney patients do have heart issues. Yeah. Um, maintenance fluids is typically 40 to 60 mils per kick per day. So a lot of people will do that math and then add in your fluid deficit and then just reduce the rate later. Um, yeah. so normal say a lot year, of times it's like one and a half or two times maintenance is what my doctors will say. Exactly. Which that math is pretty clear too. So 40 to 60 mils per kick per day times one and a half or times two. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then your urine output, if you're monitoring that, especially with these kidney patients, just to make sure they're not becoming aneuric, um, normal urine output is one to two mils per kick per hour. Um, mm -hmm. And it should be increased. Or 24 to 48 <laughs> per mils day. Per kick. Yeah. <laughs> so we usually, we, we like to do the whole ins ins should equal outs. Yeah. Right. So the amount of fluid that's going in should be the amount of fluid going out. If not, then, you know, is it less, are we aneuric or excuse me, not ho Well, hopefully we're not aneuric. Do we have oliguria? You know, are we less than what we're putting in? Uh, or do we have more, like, are we diuresing for some reason, you know, whether that's because we've given Lasix or maybe they're also diabetic. So they're, you know, doing that. So we, again, ins versus outs. <laughs> yeah. And then potassium infusions. We do a lot of K-Max in these patients. Hmm. And if you don't know what K-Max is, I'm certain we talked about this at one point, but it's the maximum amount of potassium you can give to a patient. And that should not exceed 0.5 milliequivalents per kg per hour. We usually give these infusions over five, six hours. We usually, we don't do a lot of, well, I don't know if it's considered K-Max. We usually do some QSing of our fluid bags. Mm. So we'll say, depending on what it is, we'll go, um, you know, 40 mil equivalents per, yeah. per liter, or I've seen it go up to 60 mil equivalents per liter, but, yeah. um, and then if you remember QSing versus adding, so QSing is where you take how much potassium is already in the fluid, subtract that out. So like um, LRS has four mil equivalents per liter. Mm -hmm. So if we want to go to 40, technically you want to add 36 to QS to 40. Yeah. Um, so I always ask my doctor, I'm like, do you want a QS or do you want it added? Because different doctors do it different ways. And so I just want to make sure that I know what they want. And they know what I'm putting in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so always ask. Yeah. And then, so treatment a lot of times too, for these patients, like especially the ones who do get to go home. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of this is tech skills of sub-Q fluid demonstrations. I made a handout. I'm working on a video whenever I get my next <laughs> patient that needs sub-Q fluids. Um, yeah. I think we've got that in, in the works for somebody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just exactly. have to find it. <laughs> And then um, GI protectant medications should go home because again, we talked about the ulcerations. This can go for anywhere in the gut as, as well as the mouth. Um, phosphate binders are super big in these patients and that should be administered with food and that just reduces GI upset, but it also maximizes the binding of phosphorus in the diet. So when you give a phosphate Aluminum binder- Aluminum hydroxide. 
kind of the big one I think we use. Yeah, definitely. Which is crazy too, because so many of those come in like mint flavored. I'm like, these poor cats. <laughs> yeah, we all it's it's so crazy. Like we usually will send them home with a couple of days of the aluminum hydroxide because it is the mint flavor. And we're yeah. like, we know they're gonna hate this. So you can try it now. And then we usually will do um compounded and get it mm -hmm. in like some other flavor or a capsule or something. But the big thing is it needs to be with food. Like you can't, you, you can give it on an empty stomach, but it's not going to do what it needs to do. It, it needs to be with food because it needs to bind the phosphorus in the food to prevent it from being absorbed by the body. That's, exactly. that's what a phosphor, a phosphate binder does. It's not once it's in the system, it binds to it. No, no, no. This is before the body has a chance to absorb it. It binds the phosphate or the phosphorus and makes it so they don't uptake. <laughs> There's no uptake for it. Um, yeah. Uh, so they don't have a buildup of phosphorus in, in their, in their body. Um, yeah. And, and, there's different diets like your normal over-the-counter diet is going to have more phosphorus in it than a kidney specific diet so mm -hmm. you know that's that's another big thing is diets um i think i think kidney disease out of all of them is going to be one where diet is is the biggest the biggest frustration for owners as well as the biggest thing that can have the most reward long term um, because if we can prevent kidney damage from happening, you know, whether that's less phosphorus, less sodium, um, lower proteins, but higher biological value of those proteins, you know, then we cause less kidney damage. So long-term they actually feel better. The problem is, especially with cats, dogs, not so much, but definitely cat, cats associate foods more readily with feeling bad than dogs do. Um, yes, dogs will do it, but cats are notorious for it. So the problem is like, you know, the kind of the big ones that, that everybody thinks of as Hills KD, Royal Canin Renal Support, Purina Enna. I think those are kind of the big prescription diet. So the thing is, is like the big three that I can, the, those kind of big three, they've worked very hard to make those foods very palatable because again, food aversion happens. Um, and they've given a variety of textures, a variety of um, like the, the canned foods have flavors. And so what I usually tell clients, cause this is going to be the most frustrating part of dealing with these kidney patients, you know, they may like one for a week, two weeks, three weeks, eat it really well, but you know, for some reason they feel bad and they associate with that food. So then they stop eating it. So then you have to go to the next one, right? And so I always tell clients, don't throw away that other food that they liked. Just start giving them the, the other variety, flavor, whatever it is. As long as they're eating it, cool. Once they stop eating that one, you can potentially go back to the first one and they like it, or you go to another flavor, but don't throw them out. Don't get rid of them. You can kind of recycle through them as they go, oh yeah, I did like that chicken flavored one. And, and you know, it's, it is hard. It's frustrating. Um, but that's, but diet plays such a huge role. Um, so doing like over, over the counter diets is not the greatest for these kidney patients. Um, cause it actually causes more damage. I always think of friskies. <laughs> like everybody says, oh, I give up friskies to eat. And I'm like, Ooh, yeah, that's like 
junk food. Please stop feeding it to your kidney cat. Yeah. And then we just recommend avoiding nephrotoxic drugs. Um, again, like a lot of our NSAIDs, prompt treatment of dehydration and careful management just of anesthesia just to avoid hypotension. Client communication, what to expect at home. We just really want our clients to monitor clinical signs. The goal is to, to reduce clinical signs. It's not really to mm-hmm. fix fix it. We just want to reduce clinical signs and make the pet's quality of life a lot better. It's all about quality of life. And we want to make sure that our, our clients know though too, that chronic kidney disease is going to progress. It's not going to resolve it. It is going to get worse, but we just need clients to have an open communication with us about what they're seeing at home. We do mm-hmm. recommend follow-up biochemistries, um, UAs, blood pressure, body weight, body condition score. And that's recommended to be done every three months just to or monitor me, depending on how bad they are. Yeah, depending on their clinical signs. <laughs> yeah. If if a patient's stable, then patients can be monitored every six to twelve months. Um, yeah, but if they're so like, those are your like stage one, stage two. You can probably do every six to twelve months. Mm-hmm. Um, stage two and a half ish <laughs> to three or four, you're definitely doing more frequently too. So. Yeah. So it's just managing communication with your clients and just informing them. Yes, we do recommend frequent, frequent rechecks, but this is just so we can tackle anything that might arise sooner. So we can make your pet live a little bit longer. Our cautions for these patients are really just as anesthetic candidates, their blood pressure really needs to be monitored closely just because these patients are still going to need dentals because we know that dental disease can progress kidney disease. Um, but just really monitor that blood pressure closely just to reduce the risk of increasing damage to the kidneys. It's the tip of the week. So my tip of the week this week though, is going to be to review the iris staging. And there actually is a pocket guide that I found really the cool. The pocket guide's really cool. Yeah. So I'm going to post that on our show notes too. So if you guys need to go and look that up and print it out, um, it's a really great resource for your practice. So I will put that in the show notes for this episode, episode 39, and just review it. It, It's always really good information because they do update it really frequently too. Every time new information comes out, it gets updated. And I think that's because, I mean, we're kidney disease. Again, you're going to see it in your general practice. You're going to see it in specialty. It's, it is probably because they can live with it for such a long time. It's going to be the one you're going to see the most frequently. Um, so, you know, understanding it and, and feeling comfortable with it is, is, is huge. And now for the question of the week. Um, our question of the week this week is going to be, what was a memorable acute renal failure case that you managed or helped manage? So acute, we want to, I want to know like rapid damage. Um, did you determine the cause of the damage and how did the patient do? How, what was the outcome? Let us know. You can let us know on Facebook because we do post this question on Facebook, or you can let us know on the internal medicine for vet techs page under the podcast show notes. There's comments, a comment section there that you can leave a comment, but I just, I'd like to know. I've seen a couple of those really bad, like NSAID toxicities. Yeah. You know what we didn't talk about? Great. All right. Well, I'm going to throw talk like, cause you said a memorable case. Um, Grapes. We did not talk about grape toxicity in dogs. I had a puppy that was fed grapes as treats and it got acute kidney failure. How did your puppy do? Mm, I think that one became aneuric. Oh, okay. Well, that was depressing. Don't feed your dog's grapes. Yeah, don't feed your dog's grapes. I'm going to have to look up this patient if I can remember who it is. I don't know if I can remember who it is. 
This is, that means I've been in this field too long that I'm like, I don't know, the puppy with grapes. What happened to it? I don't know. <laughs> What's its name? I don't know. But yeah, I remember, um, the reason I remember it is because it was a young puppy. I think it was like four to five months old, something like that. And, um, the other part that sucked about it was, um, the owner told us that the, um, owner of his litter mate had told him that that's what he feeds his dog for training is puppy, the litter mate. Um, so that's where they got the idea to give grapes. And it was really sad because we were like, please tell your friend who has the litter mate to not feed their puppy grapes so they don't kill their puppy. Yeah. It sucked. Yeah. That's really, really sad. Yeah. On that note, thank you I all mean, for joining us. Happy go lucky stories, Jordan. I mean, some of them could be, maybe not. I, I feel like no. Okay. Probably I will. Well, let's go with some happy ones. Happy ones are usually infections or toxins usually. Yeah. I've seen a lot of pyelonephritis that <laughs> is pretty bad and those patients go home. Right. Yeah. So then it's not so bad. <laughs> exactly. So, all right, guys. Well, that wraps up this episode. Let us know what you think. Answer the question of the week and we will talk at you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening and continuing to listen and continuing to learn. We can't wait to share all the stuff we have in store for you. (laughs) That's right. Thank you guys. And, um, we definitely, if you left a review, be on the lookout for your sticker, sent some more out. So let us know. All right, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.